We are carrying on in the book of Ecclesiastes today, and I hope you're enjoying this incredibly challenging book from the Word of God. Now, we're going to look at one of the recurring themes from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'd like to introduce it by telling you about Lieutenant Jack Cambria. Purves Shalwani of the Wall Street Journal wrote about Jack, who spent more than a decade talking people down from ledges and what have you. Until his retirement in 2015, Jack was the commanding officer of the New York Police Department's hostage negotiation team for about 33 years. And during his career, he became an expert at saving fellow police officers from gun-wielding maniacs and also persuading people to not jump off of skyscrapers and bridges. He was asked about his secret to being successful as a hostage negotiator. And what I would call his secret weapon was to be able to share things from his own life. Cambria says the very good negotiators are the ones with life stories. Particularly, he would add, life stories of pain that have produced compassion for others. Cambria claims that good negotiators must experience the emotion of love at one point in their life to know what it means to have been hurt and what it means to have failed, to know success and perhaps most importantly, to know how to deal with the ups and downs of life. He learned this lesson during his first day as a police officer. Cambria was attending to a homeless person and he would have admitted that he had some baggage about who the homeless people were and what they were like. But one day, he had to confront a homeless man who had failed to pay his bus fare. And as he was searching inside his satchel, he found not a weapon or something that was dangerous, but the manuscript of a play entitled Crabs in a Basket. It was actually a metaphor for the man he was talking to, and it was the story of his life and his attempt to crawl out of the pit that he was in. Cambria said that in that two-minute space of time, he had transformed and transposed himself from looking at a homeless man to a playwright. That element of life story helped Jack Cambria shift his approach to dealing with people. He developed a compassion that led his colleagues to refer to him as Gentleman Jack, someone whose guiding principle was just to get people he was working with to talk. Sharing life stories and connecting on a deeper level through them. Life stories were Jack Cambria's secret weapon. What about you? Do you have any secret weapons? Any strategies that you utilize in order to get through your day? To accomplish what you need to do? in your job, at school, in your workplace, or just generally in life. At this point in his book, I think the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about a secret weapon that is available to all those who follow after Jesus. That weapon is wisdom. This is one of the recurring themes of Ecclesiastes, and so you will have heard Pastor Kyle and others speak of it before, because the writer of Ecclesiastes mentions it often. As we get started here, let me just remind us all what we mean when we use that word wisdom. 
Wisdom is, put very simply in the biblical sense, the art of living well. To live wisely is to be successful and to attain the results desired in life. Now, wisdom does include knowledge. In Psalm 147, verses 3 and 4, we read that God determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. So God does have great knowledge. He knows all things. This is part of his wisdom. But wisdom is more than just knowledge. You can have a lot of knowledge that's pretty useless. Like the physics student from England who conducted a study that concluded that toast often falls to the ground on the buttered side. That's knowledge, but it's pretty useless. Or you can have a lot of information and knowledge that you just ignore or do not apply properly. Wisdom, however, is information or knowledge applied well, effectively, powerfully, and in such a way that provides progress and wellness in life. And so we read in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19, that by wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. Wisdom was the vehicle or the tool that God used in part for creation itself. And so wisdom gets things done, and they get done well. This does not just apply to physical things, but to morality and to justice and righteousness as well. For example, when Solomon requested wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 3, he asked God for a discerning heart that could govern well and determine right from wrong. And God said that he would grant Solomon a wise and discerning heart because, God said, Solomon had asked for the ability to administer justice. So wisdom is this all-encompassing term that refers to the ability to decide well and then subsequently to live well in God's sight to the benefit of ourselves and to those all around us. Who would not want a little bit more of that? I know I certainly would. The writer of Ecclesiastes in our passage today has a few key things that we need to appreciate about wisdom if we're to attain more of it and benefit by it. So I want to highlight three of those things. And the first is found in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes. And it says this, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. The first point here may not be very encouraging, but it is the reality of the world that we live in. The point is this. Wisdom and understanding are often hidden from us. Who of us has not been frustrated when things do not make sense or go the way we think they should? When we observe the most athletic ending up losing, the strongest losing the fight, the gifted or the wise or the intelligent ending up hungry 
and poor and broken. There's some inner sense of rightness or wrongness within us that I think is offended by this. It just doesn't make sense. And it should not be this way. But the reasons for it are hidden from us. And in addition to not knowing the why of things, the writer reminds us also that we often do not know the when of things either, especially the timing of our own death. Like an animal caught in a trap, our death is often lying in wait for us, unrecognized, sudden, and unavoidable. This lends a certain fragility to our existence, and we really feel that right now, don't we? We're living in the time of COVID, a time when the agent of our death could literally be lingering in the air right around us, or brought to us by an unsuspecting family or friend. And having contacted it, given its apparent ability to attack multiple systems in our body, we're not sure if we're going to be able to withstand it. How long is this going to last? We don't know. Are they going to find a vaccine? We don't know. Our vulnerability, because of our limitations of our understanding, is right in front of us every day. We carry it with us. That's not a very comfortable reality. Most of us would probably rather not think about it, but godly wisdom never runs from the truth. And here the writer raises the issue of our mortality and our limitations, and I think he demands that we look at this. Why? Because those who live with wisdom will not stick their heads in the sand. The writer seems to be saying, listen, this is our reality. You're not going to know everything. You're not going to understand everything. So find a way to deal with it. In fact, I think if we look back on where we've been in this book, the writer... I think he's kind of suggested a way for us to deal with it. For example, the verses right before the ones that we've just read, verses 7 to 10, have the writer encouraging us to enjoy what God has given. He says, enjoy your marriage, enjoy your work, enjoy food and drink and the good things that God has given. He seems to be saying, listen, learn to live with this ongoing tension in life. Don't ignore the frustrations and the limitations that we have. Acknowledge them, wrestle with them, live with an awareness of them, but don't be overwhelmed by them. Don't let them rob you of the joy of God's blessings. Embrace the good things. They'll help you manage the frailty of our existence. And as we're maintaining this healthy tension, being humbled by the one and encouraged by the other, it may help us to recall that having a limited understanding or limited wisdom might actually be good for us. I'm reminded of a conversation I had not long ago with a cousin of mine. He works as a senior executive with a large uh, energy company in Alberta. And he was relating to me some of the research that's been done on designing systems to control these gigantic earth movers, these gigantic dump trucks that move massive amounts of earth from one place to another. And there's a great interest in finding a way to operate these trucks remotely by computer. Uh, if we use computers to drive the trucks, it really cuts down on driver error, which, if you can imagine, the scope of these things can be pretty catastrophic 
if it happens. The computers use GPS systems to direct and guide the trucks, and they are so accurate that, and so finely controlled that they don't deviate more than a few millimeters from their desired course. It really is amazing. But there's a problem with this. These trucks often simply go back and forth on one track when they're moving Earth from one place to another. But because they are so precise, what they found is that the tires end up digging ruts into the ground where they are running. And if they do that long enough, eventually they end up getting stuck. So what the system programmers and the designers of the system have had to do is intentionally build variations, imperfections, if you will, into the system just to allow the tires to shift that little bit to prevent those ruts from being created and preventing the trucks from getting trapped. So you can see, sometimes there are good reasons for something to be less than perfect in life. Maybe there's a good thing that our knowledge and our wisdom is not complete. There's a good reason that we don't know everything. I know that not knowing the reason why can be frustrating, but maybe it's a good thing that God did not send his son until after dealing with his people for centuries. Maybe it's a good thing that Jesus spoke in parables and didn't give all the truth he had all at once to his disciples. And maybe God's slow revelation of his truth and his will for us allows us in our limited capacity to come to an understanding, maybe helps us grow in significant ways as his followers. In other words, we're often frustrated that wisdom is hidden, but not only should we fully recognize that, we should embrace it as a good part of God's perfect dealing with us as his children. So that's point number one. Wisdom is often hidden. Let's notice something else in the next few verses, starting in verse 13. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man, poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom, but nobody remembered that poor man. As a bit of a hopeful note in this section of Scripture, the writer relates a story about the salvation of a city through the actions of a single man. And we're not sure if this is a fictitious account or if it's real. There are certainly examples of this kind of thing happening in Scripture. For instance, when Hezekiah uh, prayed to God for deliverance from the Assyrians and uh, the city of Jerusalem was saved. So it may be that the writer has an actual historical event in mind here, but we just really don't know. In any event, the meaning of the story seems clear, and it means this, that even though it is true that wisdom may be hidden from us, when it is known and followed, it can be life to us, sometimes in a way that nothing else can. We want to notice the details of this account. The city is in desperate straits. It's about to be conquered by an opposing army, an event that in biblical times could be quite gruesome. 
to say the least. It's a small city with very few men going up against what I assume is a great army because the king that's coming against it is described as great and powerful. Siege works are being employed against the city. So the opposing army is quite well equipped with its military technology. It's really not much of a contest at all. Yet in the midst of what should be an utterly hopeless situation comes an unlikely deliverance. A poor man somehow proves to be the answer. And the fact that he's poor just highlights and emphasizes the fact that he has nothing else to offer to help in this situation except for this one thing, wisdom. And this wisdom is so powerful and so consequential that it proves to be the deciding factor. I describe this as a hopeful moment because the writer seems to be saying here that when we're faced with uncertainty and the hopelessness and struggle that we all face, despite everything being stacked against us, still wisdom can come to our aid. Wisdom, this ability to know and then to choose and to live wisely in the moment, can be life for us. I'm reminded of the account of uh, Craig Brian Larson, who tells about a naturalist, uh, also named Craig, Craig Childs, who was on foot doing research in the uh, Arizona Blue Range wilderness. And uh, one day he came across a mountain lion that had stopped to take a drink at a small pond. And once the mountain lion had finished, it moved off and went into a nearby grove of trees. So Craig went down to where the mountain lion had been to look at the tracks and to write some notes in his book. But just before he bent down to take a closer look, he scanned the perimeter uh, of the clearing that he was in, and he noticed a pair of eyes looking at him. What would you do in a situation like that? Would you make a big noise and try to be like a really big animal? That's actually a bad idea when it comes to a mountain lion because mountain lions are known to take down animals six, seven, eight times their size. Would you turn and run? Also a really bad idea because mountain lions like to attack from behind. They jump on the back of their prey, bite into the neck, and snap the spine. That is how they kill the animals they are hunting. Childs, though, knew what to do. He held firm, and he did not even imitate that he would back off. The mountain lion would begin to move to his left. Childs would shift over to stare directly at the mountain lion as he shifted. Then the mountain lion would go to the right, and he would do the same thing, and he would just keep keep following him no matter where the mountain lion went, refusing to give him an opportunity to get past and behind him. Eventually, the standoff ended, ended and the lion walked away, defeated by the wisdom of a man who knew what to do in the moment and what not to do. When we're faced with the unthinkable, the hopeless situation we cannot fathom or get past, wisdom waits to be our lifeline in our answer. It can be life for us. One last thing, and for this we're going to go to verses 16 to 18. So far the writer has reminded us that wisdom is often hidden, 
He's also said that wisdom, when it is followed and lived, can be life for us. Now, in these final verses, I think the writer wants us to understand that wisdom must be valued. Let's read verse 16. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Hopefully we've already been able to see this, but just in case, the writer declares that wisdom is better than strength, better than the weapons of war. This is the point of the account that he has just given, because the victory over the city ultimately came from the one who had wisdom, not the superior army or the superior might. The good news is that wisdom can help us. The bad news is that it will not be very easy to remember that and to value wisdom. And I think the writer hits at three ways in which that is true. First of all, the wisdom we are speaking of is not going to be appreciated by most. Notice what he says about the reaction to the poor man's wisdom. And keep in mind, this reaction is happening after the city is saved. We're not told how exactly the poor man saved the city, but I think it's fair to assume that someone, somewhere, must have listened to him enough to be able to catch his wisdom and save the city. But even after that, even after preventing all of that destruction and pain, the wisdom is ignored by the city's inhabitants. In fact, it's more than ignored. The people actually hate it. Why would they do that? Why despise something that literally saves your life? Well, why do some people hate the gospel, the source of eternal life? Maybe it's because that truth and that wisdom also tells people something about themselves that they would rather not hear. Maybe that wisdom means that they've been guilty of something. Maybe that wisdom calls them to do something they don't want to do. There can be a lot of reasons. The point is this, most people in our world will not be cheering us on or seeking our counsel. They may actually hate us because of the wisdom we possess, life-giving as it may be. And we just need to remember that. Secondly, we may forget to value wisdom because the wisdom we're talking about will always be in danger of being drowned out by its enemies. Verse 17 reminds us of this. The writer calls his readers to heed the quiet man who has this wisdom rather than the loud leader at the head of a herd of fools who do not or cannot appreciate that wisdom. This is a timely word for our day. Where are the loud ones these days? Well, it's not the ones with the biggest megaphone or the biggest speaker. I think more often than not, it's the one with the biggest Twitter account, the largest following on the internet, the biggest social media presence. Somehow the world has decided that those with the largest digital outreach are the most authoritative. And often they have a crowd of fools hanging on their every word. But these words of Scripture remind us that just because someone has a popular blog 
or they could put up a video, a 20-minute video on YouTube, does not mean that they actually know anything worth listening to. The challenge is not to seek the loudest, but the truly wisest. Thirdly, and it may be hard to value wisdom again because of this, wisdom may appear to be impotent next to the destructive power of its opposition. In the final verse of our passage today, verse 18, the writer draws this comparison. Wisdom is truly the powerful one as we have seen, but the power of those opposed to wisdom, identified as the sinner in this verse, have frightful power. Such a person can destroy much good. I probably don't need to tell you it's often a lot easier to destroy than to build. So those of you who have done this, who have done renovations in your home, let me ask, what's your favorite part of the process? For many, it's demolition time. That starting point when you tear, all, tear out all that is going to go in and is going to be replaced. I've done that. Uh, it's incredibly satisfying to get in there with a sledgehammer and a sawzall and just tear everything apart and throw it into the dumpster. It's also a lot easier than the next phase because the building phase takes a lot longer. You may need to lean on others for expertise and technical know-how. There's a lot more to worry about, like structural principles and building codes. You have to take care to finish it well so that it'll look good. You have to consider the design of what you're doing so that it will suit the needs of whoever it's being built for. And it will cost you a lot more than tearing things out. Destruction is easy. Building is hard. Sinful living can be easier. At least it looks that way initially. Living with wisdom can be a lot harder, involving dedication, sacrifice, and faithfulness. Nevertheless, despite all these challenges... The writer of Ecclesiastes declares here that the path of wisdom is the way to go. In the long run, it will prove to be the treasure we all seek, the best for our souls, the avenue to the full and abundant life. And for that reason, we need to value it highly and pursue it with all that we have. So wisdom is hidden. When it is found and lived, it gives life and it needs to be something we value. But how do you find it? How do you get it? Ecclesiastes doesn't really spell that out so much here, so I want to close by just giving you a few quick things to think about if wisdom is really something you would seek after. First of all, you must look to God for wisdom. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing God doesn't mean that we cower in terror from him, but that we respect him, we acknowledge who he is, and we seek to honor and follow after him. The calling here is for us to learn everything we can about him and then to live as he directs, to study his word, to meet with him in prayer and allow his Holy Spirit to lead us, to gather with his people and learn from the collective wisdom that has come to them as a community of faith. We want to soak in everything that we can know about him from these various sources. 
And we need to remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's just the start. When we come to fear the Lord, we know where it is that we will find this wisdom. But having found it and understood it, then we need to apply it and live it. James chapter 3, verse 17 says that wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. In other words, this wisdom finds its way into our everyday life. So be true and act on what you find in your study and then live it before him. Secondly, when you seek after wisdom, do so in the confidence that you will find it. Or rather, in the confidence that God will reveal it to you. Don't be afraid that you're wasting your time or despair that there is no answer for your particular situation. James chapter 1, verse 5 says that if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. God longs to give us his wisdom. Ask, and you will find it. Appreciate a third thing as well, that if you've not yet done so, that Jesus is the greatest wisdom you will ever gain. Scripture tells us that Jesus chose to surrender himself to die on the cross, paying the price for the sin that separates us from God. And by doing that, Jesus made it possible for us, by faith, to receive his gift of eternal life by choosing to believe in him as the Son of God, by acknowledging our need, by asking for forgiveness, and then by committing our lives to him, receiving him as Lord and Savior. The Apostle Paul stated in his first letter to the Corinthians, this is in chapter 1, verses 22 and 30, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. If wisdom is God's truth lived out and applied to bring life to the soul, then it's not an exaggeration to say that the wisest thing that you could ever do is to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If that is the desire of your heart and you want to enter into a relationship with him, then I encourage you to pray with me in a moment and give your life to him. If you're online with us right now, you can click on the button that says that you have committed your life to Christ. Let us know that you've done that. Uh, we would be glad to chat with you further about what next steps you can take in learning about him and building a life with him. A couple of last things. Fourthly, for those who have come to know Christ, I want to encourage you and remind you that this pursuit of wisdom is not optional. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 34 to 36 says, Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors. But those, it says later on, those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. There's always a cost in choosing not to seek the wisdom of God. You may be thinking, ah, oh, you know, I'll get to that later on sometime when I have more time. 
that kind of thinking would be a mistake. Make it your daily mission to seek out and live the wisdom of God. And then finally, once you've found wisdom and experienced it, be sure to share it with others. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 instructs us this way, saying, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Wisdom may seem hidden to us, but once it's found, it's really too good not to share and just keep it to ourselves. Be a regular sharer of the wisdom of God. People desperately need it. So take a page out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Develop a hunger for the wisdom of God. Seek after it, and when you find it, share it with others. It's a tough world out there. And God's wisdom really is our secret weapon. Make sure you use it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we've seen in your word today that you are wisdom for life. We need your wisdom, not the wisdom of the world, which knows nothing of your grace and love, but rather the wisdom that is from you. Wisdom from above, pure and perfect, the wisdom that leads to abundant and eternal life in Jesus. Help us to be seekers of your wisdom each and every day. Speak to us through your word and your spirit. Help us to live in the light of what you reveal, and may your wisdom be evident in our lives for all to see. And for those who have yet to know you and who have come to see their need for you, and for Jesus' sacrifice, who would choose to live in the wisdom that is your Son, I invite them to join me in praying this prayer. Father, thank you for sending your Son to be the answer for our sin. I acknowledge my sin before you. Lord, I need you to be my Savior and friend. I give my life to you now and receive you now as Lord and Savior. Help me live in the light of your wisdom and love for me. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.